A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. We're here with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites podcast, Yehuda Geber. And this time we're going to talk a little bit about what it was like during the terrible war years when the decision had to be made whether to fight back and what was the position of different rabbis, rabbinical leaders, rabbanim, as far as armed resistance against the Nazis. Did they support it? Were they against it? And there remains a collective memory in the Jewish people that was started in the post-war years, and especially in the political climate of Israel in the 1950s, of the ones who fought back were young secular Zionists, which was true for the most part, though not only Zionists, also Bundists, Communists, and others. And the the rabbis, the religious, were against the revolt. Now, if we before we go to the war years, if we go to the political climate in the state of Israel during the nineteen fifties, it's a new country struggling for a, with identity. It's also a hard life. It's security threats. The economy is terrible. It's not a simple life there. And there's a, it's, it's also basically a country that's, um, again, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but, but it's basically a country that's going through a, a, you know, a, a PTSD. They suffered a huge collective trauma as a people, which was the war, the losses, and trying to understand it, and and therefore, what happens is is that the Holocaust and the whole idea of resistance doesn't become a object of historical research and a search after the facts and what really happened, but it's kind of used by all sides involved as a, as a story to be used for the present, as a weapon, as it were, to be used in the present of the 1950s, um, you know, that the, the secular establishment establishes Holocaust Remembrance Day, until today, it's called in Hebrew, Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura, the day of the Holocaust, 
remembrance and of gvura and of strength, which today strength and gvura has already a completely different connotation and and uh, it's much more educational, much more flexible, much more engaging. It's a different world than it was in secular Israel than it was in the 1950s. And that's, um, that's reflected in, in many ways. But um, in those days, it meant very one thing and one thing only. It meant uh, armed resistance and specifically the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which is why Holocaust Memorial Day was commemorated during the days of the uprising, right? Right following Pesach. It broke out on the Lel HaSeder on the night of Pesach in April 19, 1943. And it continued for about a month. So they made it for right after Pesach. And that was, you know, that was, they said, you know, our, our struggle for security and for building a state um, and our fight, our army is a continuation of Mordechai Anilevich and the Jewish resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto, fighting against the Nazis, it's the struggle for Jewish survival that they began, that we're continuing, so it's used on one side like that. Well, the religious response, naturally, especially in those days, was anything that the, the, the secular Zionist establishment considered good is automatically trafe. So then, obviously, it had to be that um, that their day is treif, and which is a whole other story in itself. The relationship of the religious community to days, commemorative days like that, and uh, not for now, and and therefore the retroactively it had to be that anyone, any rabbi, any religious figure inside the Warsaw Ghetto or any or during any other form of resistance had to have been against resistance that was something irresponsible it was wrong it's treif it's not the way of the Torah. and that was that became the official position and it became the official position in in a climate that was not looking for what really happened but it was looking for their immediate needs in the PTSD time that it was it was more of an emotional need which is understandable and um the more distant we become from that time and the more we've come over the trauma as a people and the more objectivity we can have when looking back at the story, the more it's possible to really go back and re-examine the story of armed resistance and to try to see it not from our perspective but from the victim's perspective. And the question is, did the victims see the state of Israel of the 1950s? Did they see that there would be a struggle between religious and secular and would they, did they see that the secular would see their army as a continuation of the uprising and the religious would automatically negate that? They obviously did not see all that. They saw in front of them um, the enemy as the Nazis. And that's another point to make. In the 1950s in Israel, there are no Nazis, to the best of my knowledge. And, and uh, you know, the... the, the they're ultimately the enemy. They're the ones who perpetrated the horrible act of the final solution. And uh, in, 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 the fa- in, in the loss of such an enemy, there is no, who are you going to point to? Who, who are they? So then the enemies have to come out in different ways, unfortunately. And that's a, definitely a recurring theme um, in troubled times. Um, that, that, that their fingers are pointed and uh, justification and uh, accusations, excuse me, are hurled. There's a a you know books are written, mostly polemics, not honest historical works. The famous uh, um, 
Haredi writer, very influential, a slonim chassid named Moshe um, Schoenfeld. And he wrote all kinds of books at that time. And he was, he was fighting um, Zionism, secular Zionism, and he was very close with the Chazoynish. And he wrote a book about the Holocaust that had nothing to do with the Holocaust. I mean, obviously, the topic was the Holocaust, but his goals were not Holocaust goals or historical or education. His, his goals were the 1950s Haredi community and their response to the overwhelming, you know, the Haredi community in the 1950s in Israel was a struggling minority, struggling for survival, and they're ultimately very, very successful, not just in surviving, but in thriving. And it was also due to people like Moshe Schoenfeld who succeeded in, 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 in fighting for their rights and everything else. But the, the Holocaust was used as a weapon, and he accused the Zionists of really being the perpetrators. And if you read his book, you'd think the Nazis never did anything wrong. It was really all the Zionists. And, you know, obviously plenty of inaccuracies, but it served a, a certain uh, point and a certain position that he had. And, and that's, that's, that's what it was, and that's what created that, that atmosphere. So if we go back to the victim's perspective and we find out a different story, they were doing, they looked at a world of desperation. Um, the Nazis had come in the summer of 1942, if we go to Warsaw, and carried out the Grossen Aktion, the Great Deportation, which in two months had brought almost 300,000 Jews from Warsaw, from the Warsaw Ghetto, to Treblinka, to the gas chambers, with no survivors, basically. And, and the remaining Jews of Warsaw, they finally find out what Treblinka is all about. Now, as long as this is an important point, in any ghetto, not just in Warsaw, in any place of resistance, of armed uprising, and the Warsaw ghetto was definitely not the only place that it took place. It was a form of uprising in many ghettos, Sosnovich, and Bedzin, and, 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 uh, and, uh, and Vilna, and, and, uh, and Bialystok, and many, many other places. Um, it was never in the early stages when they had a glimmer of hope, when they hoped that these deportations were to some sort of labor camp, were to some place that they might survive. No one was going to revolt, and it was considered irresponsible by any grouping, religious, secular, Zionist, Bundist, it didn't make a difference. As long as there's a hope for survival, then you're risking everything by revolting. You're risking children's lives, women, elderly, the sick, how can you risk everyone's lives when, when we have a good chance of survival? The only time that revolt and resistance came up was when they realized that there was no chance of survival, when they realized that every train is going to Treblinka, when it's only the gas chambers, when there's not a chance for anyone to survive, when they understood that the Nazis were dead set on wiping out the entire Jewish people, when they were filled with this hopelessness and desperation. And that's when they decide to go ahead and revolt. And that's when opinions change, not only among the resistance itself, but also amongst rabbinical leaders. You know, uh, Marek Edelman, who was the Bundist leader and one of the heads of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, who only died about uh, 10 years ago, he said in one of his last interviews, he said, why, why are you guys looking at me as such a hero? We weren't such heroes. The people who went to Treblinka and the gas chambers were just as big heroes as us. This is a secular Bundist head of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, Marek Edelman. He said, we decided that we're going to die with guns in our hands. And we thought we're, we're stronger that way. Why does that make us heroes? All of us were going to die anyway. That's a very powerful statement. Um, 
And that's why there's only the revolt at the end of the deportations. In April 43, when it's the last deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto, when they realize that there's no hope left and they're all being sent to Treblinka. And that's an important point in general. So I'll bring just a couple of examples from outside of Warsaw before we jump back to Warsaw. In Kovna, and we even leave Poland and go all the way up to Lithuania, Ephraim Oshri, who was, one of the, who was the only rabbi who survived the Kovna ghetto, and afterwards, uh, sur- after he survived, he famously wrote a four-volume set of sforum called Shailas Uchuvis Mimamakim, about halacha questions that he was asked inside the ghetto, which he mainly discussed until he died, until, uh, until he, di- he passed away in the ghetto, um, the Dvar of Rom, his Rebbe, the Kovner Rav, of Rav Rom Dei Berkana Shapiro. Um, and and, uh, and uh, he would give him these psakim, and very often Rav Ephraim Ashri would paskin also on his own. And he says that uh, he was asked of whether they, sh- he should, they should support, people in the ghetto should support the young um, members of the ghetto resistance who are smuggling themselves out of the ghetto to join the partisans in the nearby forests. What was the question? The question is that these people were risking other people's lives. If they were to be caught, the Nazis would not only kill them, they would go back to the ghetto and try to find out who their family members were and perhaps kill all the ones close to him. So it was a huge risk. So maybe we should, one option was to stop them from leaving the ghetto. The other option was to ignore them. And the third option was to support them. And Ephraim Ashri Paskin to support them. Go ahead and support them. Don't stop them and don't be passive. Actively support anyone who wants to leave the ghetto and join the fight against the Nazis and the partisans. And the reason that he gave was that since everyone in the ghetto is going to die, everyone's going to be killed and taken out to be shot at the Ninth Fort at some point or another, if we help some of them survive by the partisans, then at least a few people will survive. And we're giving someone at least a chance to survive. And speaking of partisans... Um, there were other many from people in the partisans. Rav Gustman himself, when he escaped from the Vilna ghetto, he fought with the partisans. The great uh, Vilna Dayan, and uh, later the head of Netzach Yisrael, Ramayla Sashiva in New York, and then in Yerushalayim, he was a partisan, a famous Slonimer Chassid, and a Guda leader who lived in Bnei Brak until a few years ago when he passed away. Rabbi Chil Granitstein um, was a partisan. He wrote a book about his being a partisan. There was a famous chassid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose name was Reb Itchid der Partizan. Reb Itchid der Partizan, who fought as a partisan. Uh, and, and there are many, many others, of course. Not only that, but the Radzin Rebbe, the last Rebbe of Radzin, Reb Shmuel Shleim Leiner, the grandson of the Baal HaTcheles, Reb Gershon Henech Leiner. Reb Shmuel Shleim Leiner, one of the biggest Rebbes in Poland before the war. He was in the Voldava ghetto, during the war, and not only did he support the resistance, but he actively participated in the resistance. And he t- tried to get guns, and he encourages Hasidim to fight actively against the Nazis. And he was a member of the resistance. He was killed fighting the Nazis. He was called the Fighting Rebbe. And then Yitzchak Katznelson in the Warsaw Ghetto, who was eventually also killed by the Nazis, wrote a poem about him, the Radzina Rebbe fighting against the Nazis. It was considered such a chiddush that people heard at the time that a great Hasidish Rebbe would actively fight, and in the Voldava ghetto resistance, the Radzina Rebbe and his Hasidim were actually carrying weapons and fighting against the Nazis. But if we go back to an even more interesting story, in the Sobibor death camp, again, this is a death camp, this is not a ghetto, this is not a concentration camp, 
the Sobibor death camp, there was a famous uh, revolt of the prisoners on October 14th, 1943, which happened to be the first day of Sukkot, and they broke out, and 300 Jews were able to get out, which is an amazing story in itself. But the ones who led the revolt, or one of them, the active leader of the revolt was a newcomer to the camp, a Jewish uh, Soviet communist secular uh, um, um, uh, officer in the Red Army, but he was Jewish, and the Nazis found out he was Jewish. He was captured in battle in Rostov, and they found out that he was Jewish, and he to Minsk, eventually to Sobibor. So here he's one leader of the revolt. He knows how to fight. He's an officer in the Red Army. But the one who stood behind the revolt and who had organized the resistance before Pachersky, his name was Sasha Pachersky. I don't know if I mentioned his name. The one who was the other leader of the revolt was a religious Jew, a Polish Jew. His name was Label or Leon. Leon Feldhandler, his father was a Rav. And he was a, a leader in, in, in both in his town before the war and he was a religious Jew, and being the son of a Rav, he was considered a prestigious religious Jew, a leader in the camp. And the two of them, you have a religious Jew, son of a Rav, Polish, from Poland, together with a Soviet secular Jew officer in the Red Army, probably could not think of a, a more odd combination ever, and they're the ones who lead the revolt in Sobibor. And they actually even had a question, maybe to push off the revolt, because it would come out on the first day of Sukkot, and they actually discussed this, and Feldhendler said we should go ahead with it anyway because the Nazis um, are going to find out about the revolt and we can't risk pushing it off. So you talking about Jews in a desperate situation like that are worried about carrying out a revolt on the first day of Sukkot. Unbelievable. If we go back to Warsaw, though, we see actually an interesting shift. Um, in the beginning, in the early stages, the rabbis were actually against the revolt. But guess what? It wasn't only the rabbis. Many leaders were against the revolt. Yitzhak Schiffer and leaders of the general Zionists and others were not against it because as long as there was some glimmer of hope for survival, this is during the great Aktia, and one of the leaders of Agudas Yisrael, one of the leaders of the religious community in Poland, famous Talmud Chacham, named Rebel Gazander Zusha Friedman, who wrote the Mayana Shaltaira, he was anti the revolt. We don't resist. It's not our way. Spiritual resistance. And he wrote about it, he spoke about it, he influenced others against resistance, and that definitely was a mainstream position. Um, somewhat later, he himself modified his position, and even other Abanim who were either ambivalent about the revolt or anti it outright, later modified their position due to the circumstances, when they realized that there's nothing else to do. Um, Rabbi Nachem Zemba, the, the question is always, about him, what did Ramanachem Zemba, who was the Gadol Adar, who was one of the biggest Paiskim in Poland, the heads of Agudas Yisrael, the Mayetzes, the Avbezdin in Warsaw, the Praga Rav of the neighborhood of Praga in Warsaw. He was the leader of Jewish Warsaw. What did he hold? And in the beginning, he was pretty ambivalent about resistance, if not outright against it. But over time, things changed, and he recognized the reality, and there's several, not one, and, and, and several testimonies, and, and they corroborate each other because they were independent of each other's different testimonies that say that ultimately, later on, he supported the resistance, and he gave money to the resistance, and he said we should have resisted before, we, could have, we should have done anything to stop the great Aksi in the last summer, and how could we have just gone and let them take us, we have to resist the deportations. Reb Shimshin Stockhammer, who was a member of the Bezdin of Warsaw, also one of the great leaders 
of the Jewish people in Poland, one of the biggest Dayanim and Poiskim and Manhigim, uh, Belzer Chassid, which in Warsaw was a rarity and also testifies to how great he was if he rose to such prominence uh, with his background in the middle of Warsaw. And he also, both of them ended up being killed. He also supported, eventually, again in this later stage, the resistance. Not only that, but there were uh, Rabbanim who actively participated in the uprising. The base of Zemelman was a rub of a town in Poland who ended up in, uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he leads a group of Gerach Hasidim um, actively. He signed signs about it, and he sat in the bunker with, with gun and other Hasidim and fought in the, resist, in the, in the uprising himself. And there's a two, at least two testimonies that the father of, of Yosef Friedensen, who was a famous Aguda leader, his father was Rebbe Yezer Gershon Friedensen, who was the editor of the Beis Yaakov Journal, or Gerach Hasid from Ludz, led a group of Gerach Hasidim also in the resistance and during the uprising, carrying weapons, fighting against the Nazis. We don't know what the Piyatzetz Nerebbe held, um, and uh, we know that he was there. We know that he allowed uh, Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto during the uprising to eat kidneys on that Pesach. The uprising broke out on Pesach to give them strength. I don't know if that means he supported the uprising or not, or it was just the reality of the circumstances. But um, there, it's interesting is that people could not believe that Ramanachem Zemba changed his mind. Not only did from people not believe, but the secular leaders afterwards. It can't be that Rabbi Zemba did that. He supported it. The religious were always against it. Uh, famously, a Talmud, a very close Talmud of Ramanachem Zemba, of Simcha Elberg, who was um, later a big one of the leaders of the Agudas Rabbanim in America um, after the war, um, who was not in Warsaw in the ghetto during the war. But when he heard that people testified that he had supported the uprising, he said, I don't believe any testimony. I knew my Rebbe, and it can't be. It's against his whole Ruach HaToyra, and against his whole Ruchnius. It doesn't make sense, and I don't believe it. They're all false testimonies. And 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 and, and what does it mean? What does it mean what Rusim Chalberg said? And this is the way I understand it. Of course, it's open to interpretation. He, it, it, it's, it's, it's so impossible to understand the reality of the changes that go, come along in the Warsaw Ghetto, the, that they realize, the desperation that hits them when they realize what Treblinka is and the fact that they're stuck inside and what goes over people and how they, they face the hopelessness of the situation. And they change their positions based on that. And someone standing on the outside, it's almost impossible to understand. How could there be such a drastic change? How could there be such a drastic change? And that's a very important point to understand that these the victims, what they were facing with that, and, you know, Emmanuel uh, Ringelblum, the great historian who had the Einik Shabbos archive in the ghetto, he said, one of the reasons I set up the archive was to record the changes from day to day. And he writes in one of the places, he said, the reality of the ghetto created such a different situation. And one day wasn't like the next, that if we don't record what happened from each day, we would simply forget how life used to be, and we want to record that for posterity. So he himself recognized, Ringelblum, that, um, about how reality was so changing so fast in such a tragic way for the victims. And therefore, it shouldn't be surprising that ultimately when they were faced with such a desperate situation, and it wasn't about politics, and it wasn't about 
um, heroism. It was just this very simple desperation that caused them to, for the Rabbonim uh, to either participate or at least to support what was going on in Warsaw and in other places. I have here at the end a, a new segment, uh, which I'm going to add from time to time, because what I found was, and I felt was, that there's certain, you know, being that I'm Israeli, that there's certain words that I'm pronouncing wrong, and it's always great to learn English, and you listeners have been helpful in correcting me, so I've gotten quite a few corrections, and since it's not so often that I can be corrected on history facts, occasionally yes also, but we're opening a new segment called Geb's Words, and this will uh, I'll show how certain words I um, pronounced incorrectly, and because of listener input, I now will have the correct version. I mentioned the word recently, vis-a-vis, and really it's vis-a-vis. And I, I mentioned the word environs, which I pronounced incorrectly, and it's environs, environs. And uh, the best one was a Rosh Yeshiva in America corrected me, which means Rosh Yeshiva in America know how to speak English, while young Israelis like me do not. And I said the word burgeoning, and it's not a hard G, it's a soft G, it's burgeoning. So that's the Geb's Words segment for today. Um, this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss.gmail.com for questions, comments, sources and tours and trips to these places to hear the stories of these people. Of course, follow Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and now also on Stitcher. And of course, also on Twitter, at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.